Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. Podcast is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith Urcity, Hallie Respondic, Nitesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Hi, podcasters. This is Hallie Respondic, one of your podcast hosts. So today in this episode, we sat down with Brianne Hartley from Little Star. She is the chief clinical officer, and she really went in depth on how her organization leads and implements change. And it was a really great episode. She gave us lots of feedback that we are excited to apply to the organizations that we lead, and we think that it'll be really meaningful information for our listeners as well. So listen, and we hope you enjoy. So Brianne, thank you so much for talking with us today. To get started, Brianne, who are you? Yes, who am I? So I would say that I'm three primary different things. So one, a wife, a mother, and a professional, if I were to kind of summarize who I am. So as a wife, I've been married to my husband, Mike, for almost 14 years. As a mom, I am the mother of four boys. So I have four boys that are ages two, five, eight, and 10. And then as a professional, I am a behavior analyst, and I've been working within the field of behavior analysis since 2002. So this year, 2022, marks 20 years in the field of behavior analysis, working with kids with autism, working with their families. And, you know, that really, I think, of course, rounds out what I would say is who I am. And just because I'm personally curious, what got you into the field? Yeah. So back in 2002, I was in my undergrad work uh, with a major in psychology, and I didn't quite know what exactly I wanted to do with that psychology major. And I fully just stumbled upon an opportunity to be involved in an autism practicum. And I did not even know what autism was. Uh, Honestly, I think that was my first exposure to the word autism. And so I was just intrigued and interested and found myself getting enrolled in that particular practicum experience and fell in love with it. It was working with children with autism uh, using ABA therapy. And so I essentially functioned as an ABA therapist through that practicum and continued doing that through the remainder of my undergraduate work and decided that I wanted to pursue that, you know, this line of work as a field. So then found myself identifying that I wanted to pursue graduate school. So I did my graduate work at Western Michigan University and got my master's and PhD through the psychology department and behavior analysis there. And really the, you know, the rest was history after seeing that random opportunity for the autism practicum back 20 years ago now. Do you know Dr. McGee at Western Michigan? I do. I, I know uh, Heather well. She's amazing and wonderful. I think I was within the cohort of students that was one of her first. So when she first started teaching at Western, I was one of her first students. 
she's on our advisory board at EBH and I call her all the time when I just want to get some answers. She's really great and helps me with a lot of different things. Thanks for sharing all that. Can you talk about your work at Little Star and like what are you working on now? Any kind of your passion projects you're going through and what those look like? Yes. So yes, I'm the chief clinical officer at Little Star. I have been with the organization for seven years and gosh, always so many different things that we're working on that would probably mimic some of the themes that we're seeing within the field right now. Of course, we're very interested on ways to capture uh, our patients' outcomes and what are the ways that we're measuring the progress that our patients are demonstrating. We're doing things like continuing to hone in on the way in which we write and summarize our treatment plans and ensure that our treatment plans are being written with a focus on remediation of autism symptoms and in a focus on the medical necessity of ABA services so that it not only works in line with what we do as behavior analysts, but it speaks to other stakeholders as well, specifically insurance funders so that we can have you know, really joint efforts in terms of ensuring that we can get the services that our patients need readily accessible to them. So those are some of the things that we're doing. We're really putting a lot of focus on ways to more objectively identify how to determine the treatment dosage that patients need. So it seems like as a field, we're really relying heavily on our clinical judgment to determine, you know, does this patient need 40 hours a week of therapy? Do they need 20 hours a week of therapy? Do they need five hours a week of therapy? And there's really not an objective way to determine those things. So my colleagues and I have been putting a focus on, you know, how can we really map things to ensure that we can uh, determine that dosage treatment in an objective way. And then I'll just mention one other focus area, uh, again, amongst many that we're always continually working on, and that is to become more precise and systematic in the way that we provide supervision and training for the next generation of BCBAs. So the supervisees that we have within the organization, uh, we have an apprentice model that has been adopted uh, since 2016, so now six years that we've had an apprentice model uh, within the organization, and we're always looking to make improvements. We have sort of a theme uh, across the organization of continuous quality improvement. We're always looking for betterment, looking for making changes in order to enhance what we're doing, which will fall in line with the theme that we're talking about today. So that, I guess, would be the, the maybe last kind of big theme of work that I'd emphasize as far as what Little Star is doing right now. But yeah, we've, we're always looking to work on things that are relevant to the field and not only will be beneficial for us and our clinicians, our patients and their families internally, but things that will help contribute to the field at large as well. Well, thanks so much for teeing us up so nicely to lead into our topic for today. But just in terms of also being a BCBA, working within an organization where we provide ABA, being open to evolvement and change and progress and everything like that is so important for our organizations and then also our leaders that we lead within the organization. So if you can kind of talk about a little bit, your breakout session at the most recent CASP conference was obviously super great. And we just want to continue that. Tell us a little bit about how you guys at Little Star lead those initiatives. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and with Nitesh, your question associated to what are maybe the initiatives that we're working on within uh, our organization right now, I think that does tee things up nicely to shift into this conversation about change and leading change initiatives and doing that in a way that's as reinforcing as possible for everyone involved. And every single one of those things that I talked through, whether it be, you know, making modifications to treatment planning, adjusting the way that we train our future generation of BCBAs, et cetera, essentially it does all require some change from a variety of people. And so what we've identified within the organization and some things that I've recently led is, you know, let's put a really concerted effort and focus on the way in which we implement change within the organization, because it's not only some of the initiatives that I just mentioned, but across all organizations in and outside of behavior analysis, there's going to be things that staff across all levels are needing to change their behavior and, and make adjustments to. So other things that uh, other ABA providers might uh, resonate with are things like maybe going from paper and pencil data to an electronic medical record of some sort, or maybe needing to change the way in which session notes or soap notes are written, or maybe BCBAs need to adapt to a slightly larger caseload of patients that they're overseeing, or, or maybe it's even things like adjusting to a new dress code policy that was put into place within the organization. It's just kind of rampant and kind of everywhere. If you open your eyes to the amount of change and adjustments that we're oftentimes asking our staff to do and to engage in. And so really, we were fully realizing that as an organization and identifying that we need to put uh, essentially some kind of formula in place and make sure that we as the change initiators, the people who are identifying that the change needs to occur, that we as the change initiators need to be more sensitive to the change implementers, so to speak. You know, who are the staff? Is it, you know, the RBTs, the BCBAs, maybe some of our administrators that are actually going to be the people implementing the change and being really tasked with changing their behavior? What can we do to make things as reinforcing for them along the way? Because essentially, what they're being tasked with can be viewed as a, a punishment contingency. They're going from some level of fluency before the change is being implemented, then the change happens and there's a lack of fluency. And that's why I think a lot of us don't like change. You know, it's common for people to say, oh, I don't like change. Change is no good. I, I'm not good at, at change. But if we can start by just reframing things a little bit, I was commenting earlier that within the organization, I really try to advocate for a theme of continuous quality improvement. Let's always work towards betterment. Let's always work towards enhancing the things that we're doing. So rather than thinking about it as, oh, I hate change. I'm no good at change, et cetera. Rather looking at, well, what are some synonyms to change? Well, betterment, improvement, enhancement, modification. So instead of saying, I'm no good at change, I don't like change. Okay, well, would I really say I'm no good at improvement? I don't like improvement. No, you wouldn't say that. You know, you want to invite improvement. You want to invite betterment. So really just kind of adjusting the semantics around the way that we think and view change as not being a bad thing, but actually being a good thing is one of the starting points that we've made within the organization. 
and always looking at whatever the change initiative is and ensuring that it can be centered around our uh, mission as an organization. And so every organization out there has a mission or at least should have a mission, have something that you know, you're really striving for. And within Little Star, whatever change initiatives that we're setting forth, it can always be tied back to our mission and our values. And our values are care, advocacy, and progress. And so every time we're implementing or, or looking to enhance our service offerings through some kind of change, it's bringing it back to what are our values and oh, yep, this particular adjustment is tied to our value of making progress for our patients, for example, uh, if it's, say, related to making modifications in the way that our BCBAs are writing our treatment plans. At the end of the day, it falls in line with that mission and that value of advocating for our patients' progress. So those are, you know, kind of like overarching some of the things associated to how can we make change initiatives more reinforcing, more palatable for the staff that we work with. The other thing is really creating that vision. You know, what is it that our staff can set their sights on for the future associated to this change initiative? Because yeah, right out the bat, right out the gate, it, it is aversive to have to adjust your behavior because again, you don't feel fluent. So can we help our staff push through that discomfort of a lack of fluency by looking ahead at what is a possibility once we have fully integrated the change into our systems? So an example there, again, if we were uh, to stick with the example of making modifications to the way that we write our treatment plans, well, a hypothesis is that if we make adjustments to our treatment plans to really focus on remediating the symptoms of autism, likely a really positive outcome and the vision for the future is that we'll have more of our treatment plans approved right out the gate when reviewed by insurance providers rather than those treatment plans being denied and then having to go through the appeal process, et cetera. And so creating that vision and, and providing more of that rationale for staff can make the change initiative, whatever it may be, again, more reinforcing and you can oftentimes get more buy-in and more support when you really frame things in that way. Thank you for sharing your framework for change. As a human being, I can relate. I don't like change, but change is necessary for everything in life from changing physically as a human being to changing emotionally. So being that we are in the spirits of celebrations of Juneteenth, DEI is hopefully at the forefront of everybody's mind. Where do you see this framework fitting into the change that needs to happen in our field to support equity and inclusion? for not just our patients and the families we work with, but also with our staff? And how is Little Star using the same framework for change to push that forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great, Nan. Like you're saying, so relevant, you know, DEI initiatives. And I would really fall back on those themes associated to how does expanding DEI initiatives for staff, patients, et cetera, within an organization, how does that tie into one's mission within the organization? You know, is there an objective to um, provide services in a really comprehensive way 
to maybe include a more diverse set of, of patients, for example, or along the staff angle. If an organization were to look at its current staff members and identify that there could be more diversity, that the organization could include more staff, you know, is that tied to the mission? Uh, if so, then yes, absolutely. Let's put some change initiatives to ensure that we're fully living our mission and living our values. And then to the vision points that I was indicating for your staff currently, who you're kind of tasking with being the implementers of maybe some DEI change initiatives, again, prompting them to think about what is that vision ahead? What do things look like down the road after we have a perhaps more comprehensive hiring process or a more comprehensive enrollment process to increase more diversity? You know, what does that look like? That likely looks like a much more inclusive and comprehensive organization overall. And you know, by setting that vision, it could likely, again, really increase the motivation for your staff to get behind those kinds of initiatives. Thank you for explaining how you work through DI at Little Star. I know it's a really huge initiative to take on for most companies. So I like to always ask what people are doing so we can all learn from each other. So thanks for sharing that. Can you tell us what your superpowers are? My superpowers? Well, gosh, I pride myself in my organizational skills. I think it's necessary to be able to have uh, systems in place to keep things organized and keep things pushing forward. I'll draw back again to Natesh, how you started the conversation and asking about the various different initiatives that are occurring at Little Star. And, and there are a lot, you know, I mentioned a few, but I didn't mention many as well. And so within my role, I'm tasked with ensuring that we can keep our sights on you know what all of those things are, what all of our goals and objectives are, and making sure that the teams that are working within those areas can keep pushing things forward, keep making progress. And so I guess a superpower would be the organizational skills to be able to do that. And really the skill set, I think oftentimes of a behavior analyst is beneficial in those things. So looking at not only from the behavior analytics realm associated to, you know, applied behavior analysis, but then from a systems analysis, kind of organizational behavior management. Natesh, you brought up Heather McGee earlier, and I commented that I was lucky enough to be one of her first students. And so I'm always falling back on the skills learned in graduate school from Heather McGee and others in terms of how do we keep things organized in a way um, systems-wide, organizational-wide from that behavior systems analysis perspective and organizational behavior management perspective. So I suppose I'd lump that into my superpowers as well, is being able to fall back on those early experiences through grad school. That's great. And one of the things that I always kind of focus on is like, so these a lot of these initiatives you mentioned were obviously really great. And I think a lot of the companies that are trying to become better at what they do are all focusing on these types of initiatives. You know, when I first got into the field, I'll give you a, a little plug. When I first got in the field in 2015, you know, I was like, you know, what is good ABA? You know, I was surrounding myself around a lot of clinicians 
I said, oh, you need to look at the golden standard of ABA. And it was always, oh, look at what Little Star does. So you guys have always have a great reputation of what you guys have done. I've always learned that from what you guys. So I really appreciate kind of like your initiatives and what you guys have done to build throughout the years. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. So one of the things that I always wonder is you've gotten to a, a decent size. You had a, in a much larger size when you first started. You know, we've all grown as companies. Your focus points that you mentioned earlier on some of the key initiatives that Little Star is working on, you know, I think it's easier when we're at the size and have the resources to work on outcome measures, for example, or DNI initiatives or stuff like that. But, you know, outcome measures in general is like this really big task that the field is looking at right now. And we're all wondering, like, there's not really a lead on it. Like, who, like, what do we collect on data? Who is doing it? Like, what is the way to do this? It's kind of, we're all taking this initiative separately. So what I want to always make sure that we focus on is little companies, mid-sized companies, large companies. How can everybody have that same type of initiative to make the change for the betterment of our patients? So can you give some examples of like outcome measures for maybe Little Star or somebody else? It might be a little bit easier to kind of start to work on and produce, but what are the smaller agencies, the mid-sized agencies need to work on as well that in their, in their less resources so they can still stay on top of the game for quality ABA services as we get to this next level? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question because you're right, you know, within our industry right now, there's a big range in terms of sizes of organizations. And also, like you're saying, as a result of that, the resources that each organization has within its capabilities. And so in general, looking at Dependent on an organization's size, if smaller and if there's not as many people within the organization to focus on different initiatives, you know, I think aiming for a more singular focus from the folks that work within that organization. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I am extremely fortunate and I realize that within the scope of the resources that I have uh, at Little Star to be able to be working on many different initiatives at the same time. But yes, please don't misunderstand that it's me by myself doing those things. I have amazing team members who all have different objectives that then are their singular focus, and they often have team members that work with them. So I think for you know how that's applicable to a smaller organization is if you find that you, you know, listener out there, I suppose, are you know one of maybe only just a few BCBAs or folks who have the opportunity to lead these change initiatives, don't try to tackle everything all at once. You know, identify what's your singular focus, what's the thing that you can really kind of put your claws into, so to speak, and invest your time, energy, efforts into in order to see effective progress being made. And so, and I think that, you know, that notion of being able to see progress being made ties into this conversation as well, associated to leading effective change initiatives is whether you're big or small, if you're attempting to do something, but you're not able to physically see, feel and touch the fact that you're making progress, that the change that you're implementing is making a difference or that it's leading to the vision that you set forth, you're going to get discouraged. It's not going to feel good. You're going to feel like, you know, your wheels are spinning. And so, yeah, whether you're small, midsize, large, making sure that the change initiatives that you're working towards are things that you've mapped out what your benchmarks of progress are, again, using our behavior analytic uh, repertoires to say, take a really big task and break it down into smaller, more easily achievable goals so that 
a month into the change initiative. Yep, we said we wanted to be here and we made it. Fantastic. Are we completely where we want to be? No, but that's okay because we're seeing ourselves, you know, get closer and closer to what that progress is that we want to make. And so, yes, again, for those smaller organizations, you know, don't try to conquer the world, so to speak, right out the gate because you won't be able to contact the reinforcers associated to making progress. It's just not possible for a single person to try to do all of the things, but it's absolutely possible for a single person to do some of the things and do those really, really good if you have that singular focus and you can, you know, really just kind of be zeroed in on what that vision is. I think it's super important because as the field evolves and I think that's a good thing about kind of CASP, right? Like we're all trying to help each other out. It's the only field that's kind of feels like it's like that. You know, I came from a different field altogether, but everybody's helping because as the quality of the of, of the services go for all organizations, we're all going to be reflective of what every organization does because it's a, it, it helps the, the industry in general, right? So I think it's important, like you said, is why we help all sides of organizations to get there. It could be overwhelming at times, but I wanted our listeners to know that, hey, at every level of organization, we should be looking at these things to achieve so it's the betterment of our patients. And I think it's important for you know people like yourself who do these talks, and I think it's great so all people can kind of hear and what should prioritize and move and evolve our, our practices. So it's great. And Natasha, I want to pick up on your point. It's so important, especially as a small provider in the ABA world. There are a lot of, there's been so much growth in ABA, as we are all aware, and Little Star and Power Behavioral Health with you, Natasha, and, and Holly. I think you guys are more mid-sized. On every level of the size of the organization, there is still room for growing and improving. So I think it's so important, especially for smaller providers to join communities like CASP so they are plugged into the networks of the companies who are more established like Little Star and Empower and get some of the benefits of not starting the work from scratch and partnering with other providers to make more impact. I believe it's Jane Green who says the rising tide lifts up all boats, right? So if we can all work together, I believe we'll all be better off at the end. And I want to echo what Nitesh said about CASP. I could not have found a more collaborative community. We really are all there to help each other. I hope that we can continue to nurture that as a group. Absolutely. Yes. I echo those sentiments as well. You know, I really having the opportunity to collaborate with all of you in some capacity prior to this conversation, prior to the CASP conference, but through the special interest groups or just kind of breakout opportunities to connect with other folks through CASP has been just truly amazing and so beneficial. Brianne, so you were talking about making sure that change initiatives are connected to your vision. I'm not sure if you said values to mission, like just making that really clear and within your language. And I guess just more so setting that expectation of like change is going to happen versus here's change and everybody panic. But I am curious if you've ever ran into a situation where you have, because you talked about like verbalizing what will come and giving that rationale of this is why we're doing it. And then these are the effects of after we lead this change initiative or we've met these milestones and goals, this is what you'll come into contact with. Have you ever verbalized those and then those things didn't exactly happen? Because I think like just kind of thinking as a, I think communication is great back and forth all the time, keeping everybody in the loop. But I could imagine with some things, maybe that could be some hesitancy in keeping everybody super, super informed because then I, I think maybe I would worry, 
oh no, like I don't want to misspeak or I don't want to say something's going to happen and it doesn't. So I'm just curious if you've been in that situation before. Yes. Well, and Hallie, absolutely. Those are really important points to be made. And I love that you're circling back to that because it is important to try to avoid, I suppose, you know, over-promising and under-delivering in terms of what that vision will be. And so, um, unfortunately, none of us have a crystal ball and we can't uh, see into the future to determine verbatim what this change initiative will lead to. And so, yes, I think that's an important point that when someone is tasked with communicating that vision, you know, at the end of this change initiative, here's our vision, here's what we're striving for. You know, that probably has to be spoken about in generalities, like overall, here's what we're working towards. We're working towards a more improved treatment plan that leads to better outcomes for our patients. For example, that kind of vision at the forefront, it could do without the nitty gritty details. You know, you wouldn't want to necessarily say, you know, and hey, team members, this is going to take um, the percentage of our approvals from this percentage to that percentage, because you don't know, you're hypothesizing that it could be beneficial in that capacity, but you don't know. So I guess that's just an example of a detail that if, if you want, you know, your approval percentages to go from this to that, you can have that as a goal for yourself. And you could maybe, you know, communicate those things in generalities with your team members, but to sort of promise that that's a part of the vision is not necessarily the level of detail where you want to be for exactly the reasons that you're describing. You don't want to get to a point where it's like, oh, yep, that actually didn't happen. And so now folks are kind of back to feeling discouraged in some capacity. So yeah, I would say that really just kind of speaking in generalities of overall what the objectives of the change initiative, what that vision will be. Um, and then I think, Hallie, you highlighted this as well, but having that frequent communication, aiming for as much transparency throughout the process as possible, having some checkpoints with your team members, no matter how many there are, if there's just one team member that you need to be communicating with, or if there's a hundred team members that you need to be communicating with, identifying the frequency and the format for those updates. So as an example, at Little Star, I facilitate what we call monthly clinical updates meeting. And so it's the first Friday of every month and all of our BCBAs and our apprentices who are the, our future, I guess, BCBAs are invited to that meeting. And it's just a 30 minute virtual discussion where I hop on and the intent is to give updates on a variety of things, whatever kind of the most relevant initiative is, um, share data, share just as much information as is relevant at that time. And so that's the kind of cadence and frequency that I've adopted to get to, I think, the point that you're making, Hallie. And if I need to sort of course correct during those times, then I know I'll have that opportunity once a month to say, hey, we, we thought we were going to be able to go here. Actually, we went there instead with whatever this 
a change initiative is. And so really kind of creating as the leader uh, of the change initiative, creating those designated times to be in communication with your team and, and, and rely on a system to ensure that communication will happen. Because without that really deliberate cadence, it's likely that you as that change leader could lose sight on the fact that a month has gone by. As we all know, the days, the weeks, the months, they all kind of fly by and maybe blur together. And so sometimes I sort of uh, have that feeling of it's already the first Friday of the month again, and and it's already a, a monthly clinical updates meeting, but good, you know, great. I can update the team on XYZ in terms of what's going on. So yeah, I think you know, generally setting the vision and then having that frequent communication would be a way to combat some of the things that you were talking about, Hallie. Just thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I think just thinking about our field and how it is progressing, there's a lot of change all the time. I don't know if it's just right now. In reality, I just think it's always changing. It has to be. And so I think it's really meaningful and something that a lot of our listeners and even us can apply and take in and is super helpful. So thank you so much for it. Yeah, I would agree. One of one of our core values at EBH is agility, and that comes with change management. And I think it's really important that as leadership team or leaders in the organizations, you know, we are always kind of moving and changing things we think that's best. But I think it's how you communicate that down to all levels of staff is where most organizations fail. That open communication, that transparency, how you communicate at each level is super hard. And it's we work on it every single day and we we still have issues like where I don't feel like I'm being communicated with. And I think it's like we just sent like three emails and we sent updates in HRS and then Central Reach and we talked to you. But it's still not enough sometimes, you know, I think. And since our field is so new and, you know, 50 percent of our BCBAs are two years out of college and RBTs are probably even newer than that. And first time jobs, how we do this thing is important because we are seeing all these things. So I really appreciate the work you're doing on that and kind of like teaching the masses of like, this is super important and this is how you should do these things. I think all of us will benefit from that kind of that learning. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe just one additional point, because Natasha, you're, you're highlighting maybe some barriers that can creep their way into the leading of change initiatives. And I think oftentimes one of the biggest barriers is when you as the change leader are hearing from your team members uh, that they're just not bought in to whatever the issue is, or they just can't kind of get behind, or there's a lack of motivation. And so if that's the kind of feedback that you're hearing, I think that's a good prompt then to evaluate, you know, what's the information that I have as the change initiator and leader that is making me motivated to see this change happen, that is allowing me to be fully bought into these things. And sometimes if you do that reflection on what's maybe the information that I have that my team members don't yet have, or maybe I haven't communicated the information enough and in enough uh, variety of ways to really speak to the way folks can understand and kind of comprehend the ins and outs, 
Um, I know through CASP, of course, it's a lot of executives and people who have a full understanding of clinical and HR and finance and laws and, you know, the motivations of stakeholders. And so inherently, we as the change leaders do have a really good comprehensive understanding of this is why we need to change XYZ. But again, when we're seeing and and hearing kind of pushback from our teams, like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Really just kind of prompting yourself. Maybe I'm missing a couple pieces of information that I need to share. Maybe I need to give more background on, you know, the HR implications of this or some legal issues within our state that prohibit us from doing that. And so you might just find through that reflection that you discover unintentionally that you've withheld a certain pieces of information that would help your team get further bought in. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. I hope this helps us all become better change agents and become more agile and flexible for change. Yes, me too. Natasha, I love that value, by the way, agility. It's a good one. Yes, that's really powerful. Formed out of COVID for sure. (laughs) Let's revise our values (laughs) post-COVID. Yeah, we had to, we did, we changed, we like totally, you know, we revamped it. And we, every town hall we go, we, we go through our mission and our, and our values every single time. I get that, beat that into everybody's head. This is what we're here. This is what we're here. So do we, just like with your point of agility and like making sure that change is within your organizational structure and values and everything like that, we utilize. So we have humbly confident as one of ours, which is like knowing what you know and also knowing what you don't know. And then we just added curiously proactive. So like remaining up to date and, you know, kind of like going outside of what you're seeing, your four walls, and then also acting within that. So, you know, like staying current. So you're knowing what to change and then also knowing when to change it. So I think the value component is so important. I think we need a breakout session at CAS next year for values and we should like like a round table and everybody can discuss what I think. There might be some stealing going on, but I think it's okay, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? Take those really fantastic values and see them spread nicely across the nation. That's a great idea, Natesh. We did a whole creative brand on ours. We got branding on all of them. We really like it. Our birds, all of them, so it's pretty cool. All right, so we're definitely in. Yeah, right? <laughs> Sign me up. All right, now to rapid fire questions. Okay, yeah. So some rapid fire. So these are like just silly questions and you can answer them any way that you want. So if you were to write a book, what would it be about? I would write a book on establishing an effective morning routine for behavior analysts. So it stems from the miracle morning. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book. But there's kind of like a general miracle morning, and then there's a miracle morning as it relates to teachers and nurses and different professions, kind of like the chicken soup for the soul, how it's, you know, targeted for different audiences. And so I would write a book on the miracle morning for behavior analysts. Oh, I love that. I also wrote that down. I'm going to check that out. Natasha, have you read that? No, I just Googled it and put it in my Amazon cart. Yes, totally. Read that, guys. I came across it in the fall of last year, and it has really enhanced my mornings for sure. Hallie, I think we built a new question based on this. I think we need to ask, what's your favorite book? Because that's something we should do. That's true. Ooh. 
And it's a little self-serving. <laughs> That's right. You generate your, you know, have to read these books. Okay. So follow-up question. What is your morning routine? Because now I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Well, my morning routine, uh, it always starts with a workout. And so physical activity I think it was earlier, uh, not asked, what's your superpower? And so maybe I would also answer that question with my morning workout is my superpower because I don't drink coffee. I've never been a coffee drinker. And so I don't start the morning with caffeine. I start the morning with a workout and that energizes me and gets me kickstarted for the morning. So, and that's always been a part of my morning for a very long time, many years. But after reading the miracle morning, I've also started with journaling in the morning, doing some guided meditation, which I've never been a meditator before, but I've got an app that kind of guides me through a 10 minute meditation in the morning and then just 10 minutes of reading. So um, I always kind of have a book on hand that I'm reading through. And I think like all of us busy professionals, you can very rarely find the time to sit down with a good book for you know an hour or more. And so I'm biting off just little tidbits at a time and just doing 10 minutes of reading in the morning. So uh, yeah, definitely, again, recommend that Miracle Morning to really just kickstart your day to feel super accomplished and energized. I have so many follow-up questions, but, you know, save it for another time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can chat some other time, Hallie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, so what is your pet peeve? Everybody has one. What's yours? Yes, pet peeve. Okay, two come to mind. So one is super silly. I don't like chipped nail polish. Oh my gosh, if I have chipped nail polish, it just drives me nuts. So like I said, super silly. Um, But the other, I guess, would be people who don't do what they say they're going to do. That's a pet peeve. You know, if you tell me you're going to do something, I really need you to stick with that. And I really need you to do that. So yeah, two pet peeves for you. I agree. (laughs) I loved those answers. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. It's great to learn a little more about you and and all the great things you're working through and uh, and some good advice you gave us for the mornings. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Again, we we really appreciate it. And this is fun. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, good. Thank you guys, too. I really appreciate it. And it was, I agree, a fun conversation.